Welcome to the Family Matters Podcast, where we answer the tough questions about divorce and separation, empowering you to make better decisions for yourself and your family. Hello, everyone. Benjamin Bryant here from Bryant McKinnon Lawyers, welcoming you back to the Family Matters Show podcast. I can't quite believe we've reached episode 17, but here we are. And today we are going to talk about one of the biggest potential cost savers in the family law process, mediation. As usual, my business partner and family law specialist, Heather McKinnon, is joining me for this discussion. How are you, Heather? I'm well, Ben, and it's good to be talking about mediation. I've just spent a week in the family court and I wouldn't want people to have to go through that process um, it's mediation's definitely the best way to deal with disputes if you can. And I absolutely agree with that, Heather. And there's no question that mediation has saved many of our clients from the financial and emotional costs of going to court. And I'm very excited to say that today we are joined by a real subject matter expert. Philip Theobald is an accredited family law arbitrator, family dispute resolution practitioner, and experienced family law mediator. He is the chair of the Australian Institute of Family Law Arbitrators and Mediators, and in our experience, is a very gifted mediator who has helped many of our clients reach agreements. We hope to have Philip sitting with us to record today, but thanks to state COVID-19 closures, he will be talking to us from his home in Tasmania. Welcome to the show, Philip. Thanks, Ben. I think I have to correct one thing in your introduction. I, I was the, I'm no longer the, the chair of the Australian Institute of Family Law Arbitrators and Mediators. That job's gone to a good friend of mine, Alan Davies in the West. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you, Philip. Are we ready to go ahead? Yeah, I'm ready and excited to talk about mediation anytime, Ben. People use the term mediation to mean different things. We also hear the term family dispute resolution. So we can be clear from the outset, Philip, what does the term mediation mean in a family law context? And is family dispute resolution different to mediation or just another word for the same thing? Ben, it's really just another word for the same thing. There are differences in that the format you have to use in the process of family dispute resolution is set by the federal government. And that means that there are some things you have to do when you're conducting mediation under that heading. But mediation generally is just a matter of somebody helping people reach a compromise, not telling them what to do, but assisting them to reach their own settlement. That's the, the very broad definition, assisted negotiation. Experts in the field or academics will define it in, in much more elaborate terms, but it's really just assisted negotiation. And so, Philip, what actually ha happens in the mediation session? How do you help these couples try and resolve disputes? I use a three-phase method. I talk to each couple individually first, each member of the couple individually, and find out a bit about them, whether they're comfortable being in the same room or on the same Zoom platform as their partner. Talk about the advantages and disadvantages of doing that. I usually ask them why the matter hasn't settled because that enables them to tell me what they see as the difficulty in reaching settlement. Then we move usually to a joint session where each party, usually through their lawyers, tells me their present position. And the important part of this session is that they tell the other party their present position and they hear back from the other party their position. So everybody starts off knowing how each one of them feels about the matter and usually what they want to get out of it. Then I try to sort of reframe what they want to do into more neutral terms and set about 
working our way through it. If they're talking about property, we might talk about individual items of property first, establish the values of them, establish who wants to keep what. If we're talking about children, we'll usually set a bit of an agenda as to what are the important things and what are the less important things that they want to reach agreement about. We may break into individual meetings with the parties to talk privately in an effort to develop some options about settlement. And then sometimes we come back together as a joint session or I end up moving between couples with ideas for settlement. Sometimes we have a final session together to run over what's been agreed. Other times, depending on the mood of the parties, they might just individually leave with or without a settlement. But I must say that in the majority of cases, a settlement's reached. And Philip, so there's two important things there is really communication and the exchange of information. And I guess people have to feel that they're in a safe place to do that, which brings about the issue of confidentiality. Are mediations confidential? And what if one party has information that they might want to share with you as the mediator, but they don't want to necessarily let their ex-partner know? The individual sessions are totally confidential. And I usually tell people that I will only relay from an individual private session to the other party only if they've told me to do it. As far as the overall mediation is concerned, they're settlement negotiations. They're covered by the without prejudice doctrine. If they're a private mediation, they sign my mediation agreement, which acknowledges that what takes place is totally confidential and also provides an agreement from the parties that they won't subpoena me to attend court if the matter doesn't settle. If it's a family dispute resolution matter, then the Family Law Act actually provides them with the protection of confidentiality. Phil, I think it's important to give people practical examples of the sort of information that people might share with you in those confidential sessions um, that helps you understand how you might help them move forward. Can you think of common examples of where people will spill their guts, if you like, and tell you, look, I don't want the other party to know this, but I want you to know? Are there things that come to mind that often are shared with you? In property mediations, people often share what they want to do with the money that is going to be divided up. And they don't want the other party to know because it's part of getting on with a new life. In children's matters, you often have parents tell you things that the children have told them about the other party and they say, please don't tell you know, mum or dad this because uh, they'll be upset. And of course, I've got no idea of knowing it and neither have they whether what they're being told by their child is correct, but that happens quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And Phil, in family law, we know that mediation can occur sometimes before court and sometimes it's required by the court. At what point and on what issues does a court require couples to mediate? At the moment, the court requires couples to mediate property matters, either directly through the court registrar or through an outside agency before they're listed for hearing. In terms of children's matters, the court seems to use the idea of mediation depending on the couple's circumstances and what's talked about in the family report that the court's already got in front of it. People have to mediate before a parenting matter can be listed in court for hearing, and that's when they use quite often the Family Relationship Centre, who can give them a certificate that says they've been to mediation, haven't been able to reach agreement, and if they've got that certificate, they can then file an application in the court. And so that Section 60R certificate is relevant to parenting matters, not property matters? That's right. It's only relevant to parenting matters. 
And one of the premises of mediation is people willingly approaching mediation and also going with an open mind um, or with a genuine attempt to resolve the matter. Some people might think that when a mediation is forced by the court, that is perhaps at cross purposes, it doesn't achieve that. In your experience, does a court-ordered mediation work? Yes, they do, Ben. Um, I think in court-ordered mediation, I frequently have both parties tell me privately that the other one will not settle because they want to go to court. They look a bit amazed when you tell them, oh, I've just heard that from your partner about you. But that certainly happens. I think people are anxious to get matters resolved. People are very conscious of the delays in the court system. People who've separated usually want to get on with their new life. And mediation offers them a way to do that if they can reach agreement. And Philip, it's certainly the case in my observation that having you there as a third person who's objective and not in the conflict is a way of people sharing their fears and concerns, which actually helps them feel more confident then to negotiate. That role of a wise listener, I think, is one of the reasons that you're so successful. It's really interesting to watch when they realise you're not hired by anyone, you're just there to help them. Heather, I, I try nowadays to make it very clear right from the start that I'm not there to judge or to tell people who's telling the truth and who's not. I'm there to help. I'm also conscious and sometimes remind people that you never learn anything by talking and uh, listening is the key to it. Absolutely. And Heather, I might ask you, in your experience with property matters, do you think there's advantages to perhaps mediating before court or actually filing with the court, getting in the system and doing the mediation at court? Um, It really depends on the position that each party is in the resolution of grief. So what we find is that Some people initiate separation from their partners and the other partner's in absolute shock. So they take a while to catch up. Problem is that one party might want to move much faster than the other. But if people who have, say, been married for 25 years, they've been separated for over a year and then they decide they'll mediate before court, often they are highly successful because they've had enough time to recover from the shock and they're focused on their futures. The court mediation order is useful in cases where one party's still dragging the chain, if you like. They've put their head in the sand. They haven't agreed to come to any sort of meeting. And so we use the court process then to get the recalcitry partner to the mediating table. And Philip's role then is as that senior listener to help the person who doesn't want to solve the problem to relax a bit and get them to realise that their whole approach to life will improve if they can look forward rather than staying stuck. So horses for courses, you usually know in within a few months of being involved in a case whether the matter is sensible to mediate without the court behind it or whether or not you need to get the court to get the other person to the table. And Philip, in your experience, when does it make sense to invest in a mediator? Ben, I was just listening to Heather's answer and and thinking it's so variable from couple to couple. You really have to reach the situation where you're confident that both parties are emotionally ready to settle. When people reach that stage, they're usually also eager to settle. 
I find talking to both the solicitors that they've got is a great way of finding out whether people are ready to settle. Certainly, if they're not, then it's a waste of time. And I quite frequently have people ring me and say, can I organise a mediation? And you'll say, have you talked to your partner about it? They say, oh, no, no, if I organise it, she'll come or he'll come. And I never hear anything more from them. It's because the other party doesn't want to be dragooned into a a settlement negotiation or they're simply not ready for it. Our listeners would hear that there's a mediator like yourself or there's centres like the Family Relationship Centre or Interrelate. What are the difference between those mediators or the mediation agencies like the FRC or private mediation? I think the big differences are that the FRCs and people like Interrelate are heavily geared towards resolving parenting disputes. Parenting disputes are the great majority of disputes that go to court. They really spend a lot of time with people. They're patient. They listen. They sometimes even have the children in a separate session to talk to them. And I think they do a great job. But when it comes to property where people are talking about their legal rights, it's probably more efficient to have a legally trained mediator there to talk with them because they keep an eye on what's going on They can see whether or not a projected settlement is likely to be approved by the court. And also, more importantly, whether a projected settlement is likely to stick, because you have to remember that in family law, it's only when the court makes an order or the parties enter into a binding financial agreement that the settlement they've reached in mediation is binding. I feel that's a really good way of separating the skill base out, because obviously, when we're rearranging property and we're shifting assets from one spouse to another or out of companies and trusts, we've got a whole lot of things that we have to be trained in tax ramifications, um, legal structures, third party rights. And it is in those cases pretty important to have a mediator who actually has the second qualification as a lawyer who can help the parties document their deal because that's really half the dispute sort of uh, resolution is in getting a structure that's going to help the people move on and pass through all the hoops it has to to be binding in the system and it's very hard to do that with property pools that have assets like superannuation in them if you don't have a mediator who understands how to structure and draft the terms. That's so right, Heather. And Philip, unfortunately, mediations don't have a 100% success rate. So sometimes it's the case that one party or both parties are displeased with the outcome and most likely displeased with their ex in a family law mediation. Can I ask the question, what if they're displeased with the mediation process or the mediator? Is there a recourse available to the parties for that? Complaints are occasionally made about mediators. If they're legally qualified, a complaint can be made to the relevant law society or bar association. If they're members of a professional association of mediators, people make complaints to those organisations. I do a lot of mediating for major organisation in Victoria, and they have their own complaints resolution service. And I always tell people at the start of the mediation, which always seems a bit strange, if you're unhappy with the way the mediation's conducted, you have to make your complaint and I name the organisation. I think it's a good idea to be upfront with people and tell them what can happen. We don't get many complaints. 
but every now and then somebody feels that they've been not listened to or something like that and they want to complain about it. And Phil, when attending mediation, you're allowed to bring a support person and or your lawyer. In your experience, is it a good idea to have lawyers and support people or better to just have the mediator and the couple? Again, it depends a lot on the couple. I used to say to people, let your lawyer stay in his or her office and just be available by phone so you can ring them up and talk through any projected agreement. Lawyers like that because they weren't sitting around for long periods of time doing virtually nothing. But nowadays, I tend to involve both the lawyers and the parties in the discussion. Support people are a a different category. I'm always concerned that a proposed support person has a vested interest in the outcome, particularly, for instance, if they're an elderly couple and one of them brings one of the children, you're always concerned that this is really about the inheritance and that may affect the advice the support person's giving. So I tend to ask if someone wants to bring a support person, that they get an independent person from one of the social sciences or or a support group in the community who's got no interest apart from making sure that the person's comfortable and doesn't feel distressed during the process. And Philip, can you give an indication of when mediation might not be appropriate? Because obviously there's circumstances where there's family violence or a power imbalance or, or a variety of circumstances. And maybe you could speak to some of the measures that can be put in place as to make sure that people feel safe and comfortable, such as a shuttle mediation or telephone mediations or the like. The big warning, I think, is the power imbalance warning. And power imbalances can be cultural, or they can be based on fear of violence, or they can just be a long-established habit of one party giving in to the other right through the relationship. The dynamic, Um, yeah. Yeah, the dynamic. And that's why I like to talk to the party separately before it starts, really to assess for myself whether I think it's a good idea for them to be together. If they've got a good lawyer with them, both parties have got a good lawyer, or the weaker party's got a good lawyer, then I think that's a good reason to not feel as concerned. Quite often, though, you get the feeling that this person is there and will be dominated and will be probably emotionally distressed if they're in the same room as their ex-partner. In that case, I don't think there's any option but to have either offer them a shuttle mediation or tell them that, in my opinion, it's just not a suitable matter for mediation. We often do them by telephone to enable people to put a distance between themselves and the other party. I think in this day and age when we're using Zoom for a lot of mediations, the parties are not in the same room. They may not even be in the same suburb or town. It's a good way of balancing the power, particularly if you use the private session electronic breakout rooms frequently during the process. And Heather, I know you have to duck off to the court in a second, so I'll ask you this question first. In your experience, especially with COVID, do you think there's been a change in success rate or there's been a difference in how likely parties might reach an agreement if it was by perhaps shuttle, by phone, face-to-face, Zooms, Microsoft Teams or the like? Is there a change in the mediation, do you think? I think we've adapted very well to the new environment. And what you see in these Zoom mediations is that the person who might have felt intimidated by their partner finds the experience quite liberating because they don't have that uh, physical proximity in the building. So I'm actually really interested to see whether we actually keep that model of mediation going after the pandemic passes. 
I think there's some big advantages to it. It's also very efficient. So, for example, Philip's in Tasmania and the cost of flying him into New South Wales for private mediation is quite expensive, but Zoom means that he can charge us rates that are sensible without the cost of travel and the time involved in the logistics of getting everybody in the same place when they're geographically apart. So, for example, Philip and I are involved in one at the moment where the parties live a long way away from each other, the lawyers are in different cities, and Philip's in Tasmania. Well, if we were trying to organise that face-to-face, it would be a logistical nightmare. So there's going to be some big changes, I envisage, going forward where we'll never go back totally to -to face-to-face mediations. And Philip, the same question. The mode of mediation um, may have changed more recently due to COVID. Has it made any difference to the likelihood of reaching a successful agreement? Ben, my my statistic indicated it hasn't made any difference. And I agree with Heather that I think it's probably made a lot of people a lot more comfortable in terms of not having to face their partner directly across a table. Rather, they appear on the screen together. I've even had some people who've said, look, I'm happy. I just want to listen. Don't have the, if you don't mind, I won't have the camera on me. Those cases settle. Yeah, I, I think it's a good scheme and a lot of people will probably like it. And I think a lot of lawyers like it because in those periods when, for instance, I'm talking to someone in a private session, the other lawyer can actually attend to matters in their office. They obviously can't have long conferences with other clients, but at least they can answer the telephone and attend to emails. So the lawyers are finding it an efficient way of doing things. And before I let you go, Philip, I have one final question for you. We've covered a lot of ground today, a lot of different types of mediations and things that are discussed and how it can come about and when you might not mediate. But if someone was going to mediate, what's your advice how to best prepare for the mediation so it's more likely that they'll reach a resolution? Mediation's about compromise. I think it's very important that people ask their lawyers before they go to a mediation, what's the best result I could get in this matter if I went to court? And what's the worst result I could get in this matter if I went to court? Because they need to know the range of results. The other really important thing to know before they mediate is two things, what it's going to cost if they go on to court, and secondly, how long they're going to have to wait to get into a courtroom. Because they're the four factors that I think people take most into account when they're resolving a matter. How much time do I save? How much money do I save? How much could I get? What's my worst? What's my best possible result? Can I live with the fact that tomorrow morning when I get up, I'm going to always say to myself, maybe I could have done better, but I also have to be able to also think, oh, and I could have done worse. That's what a compromise is about. That was great. Thank you so much, Philip. And thank you for joining us today and giving our listeners a great insight into the mediation process. Thanks, Ben. It's been a pleasure. And as always, thank you, Heather, for joining me and your ongoing commitment to making sure our community is well informed. That's certainly what I love about the podcast. How great is it that we can get people of Philip's eminence and experience to educate all of us about what happens and how to avoid pain if you can when you separate. Absolutely. And that's a great segue into next month's show, which is dedicated to community questions. Heather and I will be on deck to answer questions coming directly from the community. So if you have any niggling doubts or queries, but aren't ready to see a lawyer yet, here's your chance to get some answers. 
You can email your questions in confidence to familymatters at bryantmckinnon.com.au or message us on Facebook. We will answer as many questions as possible on the next podcast due out in mid-October. We look forward to delving into your questions and concerns next month. And goodbye for now. Stay safe and well. The information provided on this podcast is general in nature and not a substitute for personal legal advice. We recommend you consult an accredited family law specialist.